0: Welcome back, everyone, to another edition of the Prove Me Wrong podcast. As always, I'm your host, Pete Lieb. I'm glad you are joining me again tonight. It's a paranormal night tonight on the show. It's always one of my favorite topics when we can pull the spirit realm back into Prove Me Wrong. We're going to discuss tonight the seance, the history of the process, and the good, the bad, and the ugly of those who would perform it. Is our desire to hang on and stay in contact with loved ones so strong that we're willing to summon demons into our living room just to do it? I mean, we've all seen The Exorcist, right? And so you know, that's the first thing that comes to my mind. I know what happens when an inexperienced hand touches a Ouija board. You're inviting demons into the house. They're going to be possessed. Terrible things are going to happen. You know, Maybe I'm getting a little too far ahead of myself there. But tonight we will discuss the people and some of the tools of the trade. And in reality, is there any evidence that any of it actually works? Or is this truly a faith-based operation from top to bottom? To help educate me and all of us tonight, I am very fortunate to have our friend, author Lisa Morton, back on the show to discuss her book, Calling the Spirits, A History of Seances. And if you're watching on the Rumble channel right now or the YouTube channel, I just put the cover of the book on the page so you can see it. I always recommend watching us on Rumble. You can watch our interview live so I have it right there for you. Lisa is the author of four novels and 150 short stories and as I mentioned previously she's a six-time winner of the Bram Stoker Award which means she is predispositioned to being spooky. Lisa has been on the show previously like I've mentioned and we talked about the history of Halloween so you should go ahead and check that out on the Prove Me Wrong back catalog. Some of her more recent works include the anthology Weird Women, Classic Supernatural Fiction by Groundbreaking Female Writers, 1852-1923, and set to release in May of 2021 is the collection Night Terrors and Other Tales. You can find more about Lisa on her website, it's lisamorton.com, and on Facebook, lisa.morton.165. You can also find her books on amazon.com as well if you don't want to go to her website. So welcome once again, Lisa, to the Prove Me Wrong podcast.
1: Hey, thanks for having me back, Pete.
0: Absolutely. Uh, You know, we talked about your history as a horror writer in our previous show, but what spurred you specifically to delve into the history of the seance?
1: Um, An invite from a publisher. (laughs) I wish I could say it was some lifelong compulsion or something, but um, I had done a book back a few years ago called Ghost to Haunted History with a wonderful publisher called Reaction Books. And so I always have a great experience working with them. The Seance book is the third book I've done with them. And they approached me, what, about two years ago and said, hey, what do you think about writing a history of seances? And because Mm -hmm. I was already somewhat familiar with it from the Ghost History book, it seemed like a natural next book. Um, It was interesting that it turned out to be way more fun to write than I expected.
0: Well, talking to the dead has kind of always been a thing, right? I mean, I mean throughout history, there have been shamans, witch doctors, oracles. You, you always see references about someone talking to the dead. The history seems incredibly vast. So how did you approach that topic from the historical standpoint?
1: Well, because we were doing a history of seances, that actually made it easier. The seance, um, in the way that we picture it now, which is the group of people sitting around a table to uh, call on spirits, one person is designated to act as the medium, Mm -hmm. is amazingly recent. Um, Up until 1848, calling a dead spirit was usually the act of a solo necromancer or someone who had been bereaved, who wanted to get in touch with a lost loved one, um, that kind of thing. It was almost never this sort of social gathering slash group activity. Um, and it took two teenage girls in America in 1848 to change that model forever.
0: You just mentioned uh, necromancy, and I, and I know I think maybe chapter two of your book is, is called early necromancy. And m- for most popular culture, the necromancer or is typically shown as some mentally unstable, uh, spooky as hell, They're living in a cave somewhere, you know, throwing bones around and, and reading it. Are they were they historically as depraved as they were depicted?
1: Yeah, (laughs) kind of. If you look back, one of my favorite things in the book is the story of an ancient Roman witch named Erychtho. And um, Erychtho shows up in a description of a uh, battle scene involving Pompey the Great. And the the story is that Pompey's son was anxious to know how this battle was going to turn out. So he sought out this witch who could supposedly read the future by bringing up the dead. And that that's an interesting mix, by the way, that was almost always in combination in the old world was calling up the dead for prophecy purposes. Mm -hmm. That was that was linked together. Um, So this witch, the description of this witch calling up the dead spirit is 10 times grosser than any movie you have ever seen. I mean, this thing is insanely gross and disturbing. You read it and you're like, oh, my God, this is more than this is like 2000 years old and it's as gross as any movie that's played in the last 30 years. Um, So, yeah, there's certainly that angle of it shows that same level of madness and, and depravity. There, of course, are other stories that are less so that seem to make it... I think by the time you get into the early Middle Ages, it almost starts to seem like more of a scholarly pursuit. At that point, um, the so-called necromancers were uh, using these grimoires, these spell books, Mm -hmm. and these things were incredibly complicated and would call on essentially impossible acts that you had to perform to call forth a dead spirit but they still were approached with a certain amount of um, scholarship. So at that point, I think you veer away a little bit from that idea that these were these sort of crazy people out in the wilderness doing these depraved things.
0: Did they have a certain level of status within the society at that time? I mean, again, if you're looking at popular culture, they're, they're always outside of the city. They are isolated on their own in the woods somewhere in a cave. But in real life, based on the history, did they have a certain amount of status where they—because you also see somewhere the sorcerer or the necromancer is at the right hand of the king. So did they have some level of status?
1: They were essentially outlaws uh, because of the Catholic Church. The Church, of course, did not approve of anything it considered pagan. Mm -hmm. Um, Magic or necromancy was certainly pagan. It was not even remotely a part of Christianity. So the necromancers might have somewhat high positions, but it was always in secret. And what's interesting, one of the odd things I discovered as I was researching the book is how common it was for members of the Catholic Church to be performing these spells. Um Quite often, they were the only ones who had access to these ancient grimoires because they had ordered these books banned, but they would keep a copy in their records. And some of them were lured into actually trying to practice these things. Um, there's a famous uh, account by the great author um, Benvenuto Cellini, in which he talks about witnessing a Catholic priest in the middle of the Colosseum calling forth hordes of spirits. So, yeah, they they were kind of maybe like the romantic outlaw almost.
0: Well, and that's a a little uh, hypocritical of the because the Catholic Church as well. Oh, yeah. If you speak to the Lord, you are seen as a prophet, or you're seen as as touched. Uh, so you're okay. It's okay for you to talk to the dead in that in that case. But if it's not the way that they expect it to be done, they are tamping it down. How did the church put a lid on the the process prior to that? I mean, how did they clamp down on it?
1: Well, they instituted the Inquisition.
0: That was uh, that'll do it. it. <laughs> uh,
1: obviously, the Inquisition started as something else, but at some point, it started seeking out those who supposedly had conversed with the dead, who had practiced this kind of magic. Um, they, as I mentioned earlier, were banning the books and destroying mm-hmm. the books and so forth. Um, so they, would, they pursued it pretty vigorously. It isn't until you get into the Enlightenment, really, in like the Renaissance, the Enlightenment, 16th, 15th, 16th century or so, that you start to veer away from that intense um, persecution.
0: You also did talk about that dark period. And there was a, a brief period of time, especially in the United States, where calling spirits could get you burned alive, right? I mean, you would be burned at the stake. Was that trigger, what was the trigger that changed the public perception at that time? Or were those witch trials really an isolated event of, of that particular religious sect? I mean, was that going on widespread or was it just really located um, in that one area?
1: The witch trials were very widespread.
0: Um, estimates for the number of people who died
1: as a result of the witch persecutions range anywhere from 50 to 100,000. Wow. Wow. Uh, it really was mainly in Europe. Um, I know when we think of it, we tend to think of the Salem witch trials, but it was much more common in Europe and much earlier even than the Salem witch trials, which are relatively late in the whole um, Inquisition witch persecution period. Um, yeah, and there were a number of things that ended up happening to phase that whole period out. There were um, a couple of Religious scholars who ended up coming forward and saying, We we don't believe this in witches. We think this is wrong. who so were very influential. There were some um, famous trials. One of the great astronomers, and uh, I'm thinking it was Johannes Kepler, um, his mother was accused of being a witch, and he was very famous throughout Europe at the time already. And he came forward and argued against it. That was a big blow to that whole thing. And then finally, by the time you get into the Enlightenment, where you get the uh, philosophers, Spinoza and um, so forth who are arguing in favor of more like materialistic things you start to move away from religion in general and at that point where persecutions are looked at as really really savage and antiquated. Um, so it, it died out by by the time even you really get into the 1600s it's definitely on its way out for good.
0: And, and you mentioned uh, Kepler and, and just being a scientist at that point being interested in science almost made you a witch I mean that was almost you were right you were walking the line right there if you were questioning the natural order and trying to find other suggestions other than just a divine uh, inspiration Man, I wouldn't have wanted to be a scientist in that in that day and age I, even something as simple as saying I think that the earth rolls around the Sun not the other way around you, you get killed for that Um yeah. <laughs> It seems a very simple thing to say now, but you could kill for that back in the day. So, uh, when okay, so your book is about the seance, and your chapter four uh, of the book is The Victorians and Spiritualism, or The Seance is Born. And when I think of the word seance, that's what I think of. You, you, again, getting most of my for popular culture, you see people in the Victorian dresses sitting around the, the table, and the table's levitating, or they have the crystal ball on the on the desk. Can you tell us a little bit more about the genesis of that seance during that time frame and what was it about that age, maybe, and the people of that time that made it so popular?
1: There were a number of things that led up to the seance. Um, there was a
0: movement that
1: started in France at the end of the 18th century that was known as either animal magnetism or mesmerism. Um, and when we say animal magnetism, we don't mean what we mean now with that phrase, which is kind of, you know, somebody who's really hot <laughs> Yeah. Then animal magnetism actually was a theory that there were magnetic poles that ran through a living body and that when someone got sick it was because these magnetic poles were out of alignment and this fellow mesmer comes along and says well i can cure any sickness by aligning the poles and he becomes huge in france and then it spreads over um, to first the uk and then to america and it this kind of paves the way for these gatherings of people who are involved in these sort of spiritualist leanings um and there were so many things happening in the 19th century there were these huge advances in technology in manufacturing in travel in science things like evolution the theory is born in the um second half of the 19th century but all of these things were combining to make a lot of people feel like they were struggling a little bit more than they had been in the past, that they're, uh, they didn't really have a religious belief to cling to anymore, and they were searching for something that was spiritual. So what happens is that in 1848, there are these two teenage girls named Kate and Maggie Fox, and they are living with their family in this isolated farmhouse not far from Rochester, New York. And they start claiming that the farmhouse is haunted, that they can hear spirits rapping on the walls and so forth. And they figure out a way to communicate with these spirits according to the way they rap. And they tell their parents about this. And their parents start telling friends. And within weeks, hundreds of people are showing up at this farmhouse going, we want to we check this out. Give us a demonstration. And so the girls start doing it for groups. And it becomes this huge thing. And their sister, Leah, who was older than they were and lived in Rochester, saw a way to make money with this. Mm-hmm. So she brought them to live with her in Rochester. And she would hold these afternoon and evening seances where she would charge people to come into her house. She would seat them around her big dining table with Maggie and Kate seated at the table. And the people around the table would ask questions and um, the, the spirits would answer. And this is where we get the model of the seance. Um, the whole idea of being seated around the table in a group with someone who is talking to the spirits on our behalf was invented by two teenage girls. And they became superstars. They were humongous. Um, they were so popular that they got hundreds and hundreds of people to try to become mediums as well. And their fame spread to both sides of the Atlantic. Um, by around 1855, there are mediums everywhere in both America and in the UK.
0: Who were some of the more prominent mediums in the spirit game? Who were some of the the bigger names?
1: Oh, this was this was my favorite part of the book to research yeah. because these people were amazing characters, and they had this intense little community of. Of people of spiritualist um, because spiritualism ended up being the religion that they were involved with. It is now recognized as a religion and it is based on the belief that you can communicate with the spirits of the dead via um, and in the 19th century there was an important second part of that belief which has been bypassed these days. That second part was that this could be proven scientifically that it was the only religion that could be proven scientifically which, of course, is not part of spiritualism now because it's been so often proven scientifically to not exist. Um, but some of the great mediums in the, that second half of the 19th century, um, the most famous of them was a Scottish-American gentleman named Daniel Douglas Hume. Um, he was the one who was uh, able, supposedly, to levitate. He, when he came to Britain from America, he became such a superstar that he toured Europe and Russia performing for kings and queens. Um, he was apparently very charismatic. You look at pictures of him now and he just looks kind of like this frail little fellow, And but obviously the pictures don't do him justice because he, he lived with lords and, and with royalty and um, he was very famous for something that happened in 1872 called the Ashley House Levitation, in which two British lords watched him float out of a second floor window and back in through another window. Um, so he was an interesting character. Um, I also love uh, Florence Cook was one who was very interesting. Florence started as a teenager. She was somewhat pretty. Um, she had, because she was pretty and was apparently good at performing mediumship, she had uh, a very wealthy patron named Charles Blackburn. But unfortunately, Florence got exposed at yeah. one of her seances and Blackburn pulled his patronage. And when that happened, Florence said, I need some way to prove to him that I'm really a medium. And there was a famous scientist named William Crooks. He was later knighted, and he is a, a major figure in the history of science. And he had already tested Hume and had said Hume is the real deal. Wow. So Words thought, if I go to him and he tests me and verifies me, I should be able to get my patronage back. So she goes to Crooks and lives in his house for six months of testing. Now... Florence's specialty was to produce an actual full-body spirit. And this spirit was called Katie King. And the way this was would work was that people would go into the room where the seance was going to be held. And there was a part of the room that was set aside called a spirit cabinet. And this didn't necessarily have to be a cabinet. It could just be another room with a curtained-off doorway or a part of the room. During the seance... Um, Florence would maybe be bound and put in this spirit cabinet, and then at some point after the gas lights had been lowered and the seance had started, this spirit Katie King would emerge from this the, the spirit cabinet. Now, what's funny is you see photographs because Crooks photographed the spirit. He took about four dozen photos of the spirit, and of course it looks remarkably like Florence, but People absolutely bought into it at the time. Um, the, there was a dire warning that if anyone broke the circle and got up to look into the spirit cabinet, that it would kill the medium. And that, that actually seemed to work enough to keep most people in their seats. And uh, Crooks went so far as to even photograph himself arm in arm with the spirit. And uh, the interesting thing about all that is that many years later on, there were witnesses who came forward and said that Florence had told them that she would had an affair with Crooks.
0: Yeah. Um, Well, what how much of that was also the I mean, photography was still relatively new at, at that point also. Right. So maybe again comes into that. She wasn't taking as many liberties to try to disguise herself because the whole this whole the whole idea of having the photograph to begin with is magical. It's it's a magical thing. You here, you are captured. I can see you, and you're not living in front of me. I mean, that's just amazing to me. And it got to the point where the debunkers were almost as uh, as popular and as well known as the mediums, right? I mean, Houdini was a was a very well known medium debunker. Wasn't he? How how soon into because any like any growth industry, you you may have a couple of well meaning people to start. But then once people see that there's a niche there and I can make some money there or I can make my name there, then you'll start to get the just outlandish, this is the spirit, the spirit closet, you can't go in the spirit closet. I can only go in there and Katie King's going to come out. I mean, ridiculous. How soon after those type of things started happening, was there ever really a hit in the popularity or was it, was it just part of the fun to have somebody come in and also try to debunk you at the same time that you're trying to prove that you're a bona fide medium?
1: Oh, yeah, there were some big hits, and and spiritualism kind of went through these cyclical periods. Um, it was starting to fade in the 1860s, and then the Civil War came along. Yeah. And so many people lost loved ones in the Civil War that it gave spiritualism a huge boost in the U.S., and that boost ended up going back across the, to the Atlantic, and spiritualism became hot again. Um, and it would be periodically fairly severely debunked it wasn't really until 1888 i think it is that it takes two big hits that kind of kill it for for, not for good but for quite a while um in 1888 the fox sisters who have now been practicing mediums for 40 years come out and say it was all fraud we made the whole thing up we can crack our toes in such a way that it is so loud that it sounds like spirit rapping oh wow that was their confession. And then there was also a thing called the Sabert Commission that came out about the same time that uh, did a really thorough investigation into mediums and concluded it was all fraud. And those two things kind of aligned to drive a stake through it. For a while, it comes back again in the early 20th century because of another war, World War I. And once again, you have that thing where so many people lose their young loved ones in this war and are anxious to get any word of them that spiritualism becomes big again. And that's really the part where the Ouija board comes into play, too.
0: Right. So that's chapter five of the book, right? Wars and and Ouija and spiritualism going into that 20th century. And yeah, it seemed like it was suddenly the Ouija board is a parlor game. It's something that's that's totally accepted in the house. Uh, People would do that at night. They would play the banjo and and play the Ouija board. And I've actually had a a Ouijaologist. That's her term. Ouijaologist. She coined it, I think. That's what she did for a living. And I have always been significantly against uh, having a Ouija board, playing on a Ouija board. Uh, I just don't like to take a chance. Because, again, popular culture. I have never, I have yet to see a movie or a television series or anything that starts with a, a seance with a Ouija board that ends up in a love story. You don't see any rom-coms that start with somebody playing with a Ouija board. It's always bad. It always ends up terrible. And in my own personal history, my mother told me when I was very young that her father had been asking, him and his friends had been playing on the Ouija board and asked it when his mother was going to die, and it gave him a date. And to his word, I didn't hear it from his lips, but he said that she died on that date. And so he was violently against her using it or any of, any of my aunts or uncles using it. And so then she was violently against me using it. Is the Ouija the most prominent tool being currently used? I also have a hard time believing that Milton Bradley is producing a portal to hell at the clip of 50,000 a day or whatever it is. It seems like it's a, it's a board game. Do actual mediums have something specifically made or will would any board have done?
1: Um, the Ouija board was based on existing medium techniques. Yeah. Um, they were called talking boards. Um, they often would be nothing but, um, 26 little sheets of paper with letters written on them and a, and a drinking glass on a table. And, um, the glass would, of course, slide around to the letters. And, um, when the Ouija board was patented in 1991, there is no mention of spirit communication in the patent. It yeah. was exactly just a parlor game. And one thing I have to tell you, Pete, is that in the um, World War One period where the Ouija board becomes huge, there were lots of things that said, this thing is great, and here's what it's done for me. Yeah. Um, there was a very famous book called Raymond, which was about a, um, a famous scientist who actually had lost his son in World War One, and is able to get news of his son via mediums and Ouija boards and so forth, and he, he attains great comfort from that there was a really interesting case of a woman who was a housewife and um she ended up claiming that via the Ouija board she was channeling the spirit of i think it was an 18th century woman named uh Constance no the name is escaping me but she wrote best selling novels via the Ouija board that she claimed she was channeling from this woman who was had been a writer in the 18th century um And so there were lots of these interesting little happy things that were involved then with the use of the Ouija board, although you also are at the same time getting people condemning it. And yeah. it, one one of the things I was surprised about was that the con- condemnation of it came from both the Catholic Church, who put out an entire book in 1919 condemning the use of the Ouija board, but also Alistair Crowley. Um was condemning the use of it and saying that it's not a toy it shouldn't be used by practitioners unless they're very skilled mm-hmm. so yeah the condemnation was there right from the beginning with the, at that time there were so many people who were saying i got great stuff out of this i think you're right that it wasn't until the movies come yeah. along that they start to say oh no wait a minute
0: the movie never paints it in a positive light right there's never a movie that paints that you're playing on the ouija board and it introduces you to your future husband it it doesn't happen it's always bad um i don't know that i would ever i never thought that i would say this out loud i think i agree with aleister crowley that it is not a, a it's just not a toy that's where i think we went off the rails is when they started mass producing this and saying well, it's good for eight and up. Oh, okay, so when you're eight years old, you can open the portal to hell. That's fine, totally. You can go ahead and kids and, and play around because you, you do have inexperienced hands. And if you believe that kind of stuff, some people don't believe it. It's just a game. Somebody on the table is pushing it. Who knows what's happening? But I, I'm just not one of those guys who likes to take the chance, I guess. Who are some of the more famous people that have been, you know, not just the mediums themselves, but I know a lot of uh, famous people themselves were also very involved in spiritualism and had mediums. Who were some of the more famous people, you know, actors, movie stars, lords, things like that, that really lived that spiritualism lifestyle?
1: Well, I think my favorite one has to be Sir Arthur Cummins Doyle. Mm. I mean, it, it amazes everyone, including me, that the creator of literature's greatest, most iconic, logical character, Sherlock Holmes, believed in everything, um i mean you know fairies and and the spirit world and mediums and so forth and um his relationship with Houdini is incredibly fascinating and and i spend most of a, a number of pages on their relationship in, in the book because they um they were so interesting because they started with this intense admiration for each other Houdini loved writers he had an incredible library He was so honored to be in correspondence with Sir Arthur Conan Doyle that he kept Doyle's letters in a specially made little velvet lined box. But they had a huge falling out one afternoon in the summer of 1922 Hmm. when Doyle's wife had taken up mediumship. And the Doyles, the Conan Doyles, and the Houdinis were vacationing together, they were very close. And Conan Doyle says to Houdini, why don't you come up and let my wife give you a demonstration of her powers? And Houdini was somewhat reluctant to go, I think, but he did. And it was late in the afternoon and he went and he sat down with Lady Doyle and she proceeded. She was um, she was involved in automatic writing, which was the idea that you would enter a trance state Mm -hmm. and allow Mm -hmm. the spirit to write through you. And she proceeded to write page after page, which was supposedly from Houdini's mother. And Houdini's mother was the most important figure in his life ever. So that
0: was strike one for her, right?
1: Yeah, that (laughs) was a real bad choice. And um, Houdini later on wrote passionately about how deeply hurt he was by this um he he was instantly of course disbelieving he wanted to believe that his mother could be talked to um i I think it was one of the reasons he saw so many mediums he wanted to find one that would bring his mother back to him but as he noted in his notes afterwards my mother didn't speak a word of english yeah and there's lady doyle writing page after page 14 pages apparently of um i love you you're my son blah 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 in english and Houdini was outraged, and that was the end of their friendship. And after that, they turned into rivals and enemies. On the one hand, Houdini got very involved with debunking. He debunked a lot of major mediums. He gave lecture tours and demonstrations. And in the meantime, Conan Doyle is also on the lecture tour, giving big pro-spiritualism lectures. And um, was, was the mother... Very...
0: I'm sorry, was the mother, was his mother the reason that, that Houdini really became the debunker? I mean, was it really that yeah. trigger? that He said, oh, but here she is writing 14 pages for my mom from this point on, I'm going to prove everybody is lying?
1: He was already kind of well he was already set on there. the yeah. path at that point, but that certainly spurred him on. Um, two years after that is when he wrote his famous book, A Magician Among the Spirits, which was his um, debunking book. Mm-hmm. Um, Interesting enough he he sent a copy of that book to Conan Doyle and Conan Doyle took his copy and scrawled a malicious book across the title page.
0: You know, it is it does speak to again that that divide between the the scientific mind and faith. And it sounds like Doyle had the faith. He was he was faith in it regardless of what how logical and pragmatic he might have been in a normal life. He had that bit of that faith that was uh unshakable. And Houdini had the, the more, um, you know, scientific and, and being a mag- magician himself probably got him on the end that, you know, that's probably the worst person to go around debunking you is somebody who does that for a living. He escapes right. from things that looks like he cannot escape for a living. He knows all the ins and outs of, of how you rig something to pop open or how you rig something to crack or to knock or to levitate. He does it for a living. So he'd be the worst guy to have on your, you know, your bad side that way. And that's the other thing with just modern, modern psychics or sensitives in general. And I know today they've achieved a, they've a level of acceptance in our current society. But I still think the view of the normal person, uh, when a person claims to be sensitive, is a bit of a performer sometimes. You know, someone Because there's a spectrum of, and I have a lot of them on my show, and somebody will say I'm sensitive. And when they say I'm sensitive, I'm expecting you to be able to tell me what I'm thinking and what's going to happen to me tomorrow. And it never happens that way. It's always, well, I hear a sound when somebody's around or I get a premonition or a feeling. And so it, it kind of always leaves you lacking because when you you get this impression that somebody, if I say I'm psychic or I'm sensitive, that I can read your mind or that I can tell you what's going to happen to you. Has any of that ever been proven from this, those mediums and the seances? Were any of them uh, ever been found to say, yes, this person truly has uh, a psychic ability or they were not debunked in some way.
1: No. I mean, uh, I, it would change history. Yeah. It would be proven. Um, the, the, this is a, where you get a little bit into certain controversies involving science. There there are some studies that have been done that seem to indicate certain um, abilities possessed by people, but none of those studies could be replicated. So it's become virtually impossible to prove anything more than once, um, which always cast it into pretty big doubt, of course.
0: Um, But it got harder. It got harder to prove it wrong, right? Initially, they were, I mean, initially you had those spirit pictures and you had people spitting cheesecloth out of their, their body and trying to call that ectoplasm and things that you could really pretty easily say, that's not real. That, you know, what you're doing right now is not real. You're making this table move with your foot and you're lifting it up. But now we've gotten into the kind of the John Edward realm of seances where it's just, well, Lisa, I'm talking to a man. uh, He's an older man. He's got gray hair. He's got some glasses. He says he knows you, but not is a father figure, but not maybe not your father. And you're thinking, oh, oh, man, that's that's Uncle Larry. And and then suddenly you are filling in the blanks for John Edward. And he's now guiding you down a road because that's what you want. You're there to talk to Uncle Larry or someone in your family. And so he finds that, and he narrows it. So it's gotten so much harder to debunk that, hasn't it?
1: It has, and that actually, I think, is one of the reasons that at the beginning of the 20th century, mediumship shifted from what we call physical mediums, who are the ones who levitate tables and produce ectoplasm and all that, to the trance mediums, which is essentially what our modern psychics are. They are the modern version of the trance medium and yes they are much harder to disprove um the only way really to completely disprove them is there there i mean there are methods of course um there are things like um i've read some interesting studies where someone would go into one of the superstar medium shows apparently one of the things that they will often do is plant um assistants in the audience who yeah. listen two conversations in the audience and then we'll go backstage and tell the medium hey there's a lady in the fourth row who is wearing a red pantsuit and she's saying she hopes that you can bring up Auntie Josephine so if um, (laughs) there have been groups who have done that and gone into one of these shows and come up with false information which the the psychic has then repeated back to them Um, so we know that there are these fraud things that are taking place. But yes, disproving that is much harder.
0: Um, That just seems so uh, distasteful to me, to have people planted there, listening in to what the people are. Those people around you are, in a lot of cases, they're in pain. You know, they are missing someone very badly. They have taken this step. A lot of people don't take that step lightly. It isn't the first thing that comes to your mind, necessarily. You're just grieving. And you go to this show with the hopes that maybe, you know, your grandmother or mom or dad is looking out for you. And, you, and we all have this hope. I think that most is the human condition. Right. We all have this hope that, one, we want there to be something more. We want there to be something more for the people that we love. We don't want it to be over. When it's over, it's over. You know, I want my mom, when she passes away, I want her to go to someplace better. And so I, I'm just hoping that John Edward is going to tell me that my mom is in a better place. And so then you have these terrible people who are sitting next to you who happen to work for the guy who hears you say it. That to me, that enrages me, I'll be honest with you. It, it makes me so mad because you're taking advantage of these people who, who are coming to you for help in a lot of ways. The book also talks about Helen Duncan, and I guess she was on trial for witchcraft in 1944. What was that all about? Uh, you say in the, on your book page there that it became more popular than the public news what was that about? And, uh, can you give us a little bit more information on it?
1: Yeah, she's, she might be my all time favorite medium. I I found incredibly fascinating. Um, she was this working class woman who, um, ended up, um, being a medium going into mediumship. Um, she was successful at it. She actually supported her disabled husband and something like six children as a medium. And she, um, in 1941, the war was raging, World War II, and she held a media, or she held a seance in which she supposedly was in conversation with the spirit of a British sailor whose ship had just been sunk. And in point of fact, this ship had just sunk. <laughs> and it was not apparently widespread public knowledge yet. They hadn't issued any sort of official announcement about the sinking of this battleship. So she, as a result of that, she got onto the radar of British intelligence, who became very interested in her. And they started really watching her. And in 1944, they had an opportunity to arrest her for a rather minor infraction. They said that she was um, committing fraud at one of her seances. There were some plainclothes policemen at the seance. And they tried to grab... He had been producing ectoplasm. Mm -hmm. They tried to grab some of the ectoplasm as evidence. They didn't get anything, but they went ahead and they they charged her. And at that time, the only thing that they could find to really charge her with was under a 1735 witchcraft act. So they charged her under a law that was 200 years out of date. And the trial went to the highest court in the land. It went to the old Bailey in Britain. And it was huge front page news for weeks. It was so big that Winston Churchill was sending notes to his cabinet people going, what, what is this? Why is this more important than the, the war? And one of the interesting things about Helen Duncan is that, uh, and this trial for the defense Um, Originally, her her defense attorney wanted to be able to have her produce her spirit guide right in court, and the judge wouldn't allow that. So for her defense, they brought forth something like 47 witnesses who had been to her seances and who testified that they had received incredible messages from loved ones, that they had uh, gotten tremendous comfort from going to her seances. Even people who said, I don't believe in this stuff would come out of her seances and say, well, that was bloody entertaining. I had a great time. Yeah. And she, um, I that I think that's one of the reasons I'm so interested in her was that she seemed to be a sort of working class medium who actually prided herself, I think, on providing people with this solace. She was never out for the big con, in other words.
0: So who, who got the burr in the bonnet again to decide that we needed to arrest her? I mean, it what was, was
1: British it? intelligence. Yeah, they had been looking for a reason to arrest her because of the um, the fact that they thought she was a security leak. They thought she must have just because of that one.
0: Just because she one- she knew a, a ship, so she made a guess. Uh, essentially, I guessed that a ship right. crashed, and it yeah. just so happens that it did. Oh wow. Okay. Well, I guess that so so ultimately was she convicted?
1: She was. Oh. Um, she was. Not only convicted, but was sentenced the maximum amount of time under the law, which was nine months in jail. Um, she went to jail. She did her time. She came out, and uh, she actually was arrested five years later for another um, infraction. But in that case, she died before it could go to trial. So she another had-
0: witchcraft infraction.
1: At that point, they had changed the um, they changed the law after this. Uh, one of the things her trial resulted in was getting rid of the 1735 um, witchcraft law, and they actually created what they called the medium law. And it was very specifically targeting fraudulent mediums And the law, even states uh, involved with spiritualism.
0: So she might and I don't know this. So I'm putting you on the spot. So she might be, in reality, the last person in, on, on Earth ever to be convicted legally of witchcraft.
1: Yes, indeed. Well, at least the last person in Great Britain.
0: And there you go, in Great Britain. That was the kid. And she spent nine months in prison for witchcraft. Well, it's better than the alternative. I guess in 1700s, they would have probably killed her.
1: Probably, yeah. Yeah.
0: So there you go. That's not so bad. Chapter 7, we're talking about the modern seance. What does the modern seance look like?
1: I have a theory that the Victorian seance kind of split and went off in two different directions in the later 20th century um i think on the one hand we had the trance mediums who went off and became our superstar psychics but Mm -hmm. on the other hand we have those who were interested in the scientific end of this and they go off and they become a modern paranormal investigator Um, i think the paranormal investigators and i'm talking of course all of the reality Mm -hmm. television shows ghost hunters ghost adventures the whole bit I think they are essentially our modern mediums in many ways. And there are still mediums around, of course. But in terms of the superstar element, um, I mean, I don't know of their psychics are certainly well known. But yeah, I I was it was curious. I actually looked up incomes on people when I researched the book. And the guy who was making far and away the most amount of money was Zach Baggins. Zach
0: Baggins. Yeah, I was going to say that.
1: And he's making more than John Edwards, George Anderson, any of the superstar psychics. He is incredibly successful. So I think in a way he almost represents the modern medium.
0: And he is by far uh, the most overly dramatic and or showman of the group, too. Right. He's he'll go in and he'll challenge the demon inside the house because it's always a demon on his show. He'll go in and challenge the demon and then as soon as he hears something bump somewhere in the hallway, he's freaking out. <laughs> it's the funniest thing to watch. It's entertaining as hell. It really is. I totally get it. So with the ghost hunt their seance, with the ghost hunters, their tools then are the spirit boxes and the EVP meters and the the thermal imaging and the thermometers. And we've had a, a ghost hunt of our own on a part of the show, my daughter and, and my wife and I. And I know we've we've caught some things that on an EVP that – I could not readily d- explain basically just one thing. But I know a lot of times when you're watching those shows especially, they'll hear something and it sounds like, I don't know, something scraping on the ground or or uh, it sounds like a pipe bursting or something happening and they're like, "Oh, did you hear that? Do you hear what that what that says?" And then and they'll tell you something and then by suggestion now you hear what they're saying. It it sounds like um uh, I don't know. What do you think about spirit boxes or EVP? Spirit boxes to me seem almost useless to me. I don't, I don't see how it's, things are going to come out of it because you're just going through channels. So you're going to have just random words every now and then pop out. And so there's, there's a chance that you may say, uh, is there anyone in here? And they'll say, Daniel. And you'll, Oh my God, there Daniel's in here. Well, it could have yeah. been literally, it could have been a DJ saying, here's the, here's Daniel from Elton John. And just as they said the word Daniel, you happen to hear that. What are your thoughts on some of that technology and, uh, do you put any faith in that stuff?
1: I do and I don't. Um, I the uh, EVPs. I'm with you. I have yet to hear one that completely convinces me. Yeah. I mean, they, I hear I watch these shows and I and I hear them saying, "Listen to this EVP. It says get out of the house." And I hear, <laughs> yeah. you know, and I'm like, oh, "I guess I don't know." Um, I had an experience with a spirit box that was inexplicable to me that's that's the only thing that i've ever because i've
0: done paranormal investigations right. the
1: only time i've ever had something that made me go okay that was weird was a spirit box
0: and you told um, me about that yeah you did tell me about yeah. that right you talked about um it was about a you were at in colorado at the stanley hotel right we talked about that on our halloween show so you did have yeah. something on, on a spirit box
1: now i you know i i tended to be believe it's probably that that function of the human mind to look for order in random patterns. Yeah, uh, my guess is because the word that I thought I heard was mostelaria, which is um the Roman title of the first haunted house play by Plautus. Mostelaria actually means haunted house. Mm-hmm. And to hear this at three in the morning in, in a very dark, very cold house that's supposed to be haunted and up in the Rockies, you know, is startling. My my guess is that it was probably a bit of a DJ saying something like mostly hilarious or something that sounded very much like most Delaria. Uh-huh. And my brain, because I had been researching that recently, I was writing my ghost history book at the time, translated that into, oh, my God, that's bizarre. It said most Alaria. Um So I am with you. The The only time that um, actually it's with certain human people that I have seen a few things that I thought were more interesting than with these mechanical devices. Um, I've done some work with Bridget Marquard. I, I do a weekly appearance on a podcast she does called Ghost Magnet with Bridget Marquardt. Uh-huh. And I have been in on investigations with Bridget, who is a sensitive to ghost, not other things. Right. We have walked into a room where we know nothing that's going on. And she will say, oh, I suddenly feel weird here. I feel this heaviness, like I can't breathe. And just then, like the owner of the building will come in and say, oh, well, this is where the guy died. And I mean, that has happened enough that it makes me go, okay, that's bizarre. Um,
0: I have definitely had had those experiences. I don't know if I had mentioned the experiences I had in the last podcast that we had. Uh, I definitely have had an experience where like her I was into in a room uh, sitting in a room and well, in a bathroom actually I was sitting in a bathroom and the door was open and I I literally felt the I could see the distortion in the light as weird as it sounds you could almost see that the that the light was distorted in the doorway and I could feel it walk from the doorway that was here to the doorway that where I was sitting and it just stayed there and you know that that heavy that oppressive feeling I was I was not young. I was 13. So I wasn't a young, you know, hell, when I was 13, I was six foot two. I was, I was a grown man at that age and it scared the hell out of me. I'll be honest. I mean, I sat there and just looked at it for the better part of maybe it felt like 10 minutes. It was probably more like 45 seconds, but it scared me terribly. And I felt that, that feeling. I walked through the door and it didn't move. I mean, I walked right through it and I felt as if, um, somebody had taken a hand on the inside of my chest and tried to pull out as I was walking through the door. That's a, kind of how the feeling I got. And I I sprinted down the hallway. Again, I, I wasn't five years old. Uh, I sprinted down the hallway and uh, that particular house that we lived in or that my cousin lived in was my cousin's house. And if you asked any of us, he had there were three of my cousins that lived there. We, be- Between us, we probably had two dozen stories about different things that happened in that house. We were all Converts. We all believed, you know, there were more than one time we would come home and hear footsteps up and down the hallway in in that house. But uh, uh, it had a long hallway. So the bathroom was at one end and the main bedroom was at another. And it would walk back and forth and you would hear that, you know, two times a week, clear as a bell. And uh, they had a dog and we heard it. We came home one night, uh, one day, it was in the afternoon and we heard the walking and they were in a neighborhood where somebody might have broke in, quite honestly. So we we went to the door or to the stairs to go up the to see what it was. And they had a dog and the dog ran up about halfway up and then stopped. You know, you heard you, you heard her nails click on the the stairs and then she ran back down the stairs and and went under the table. And then we kind of looked at each other like, you know, wow. And uh there was just a plethora of those things. But um so I definitely believe in the paranormal. Absolutely. That's why I have the episodes. I don't have the episodes to make fun of them. I believe it. So I really do um find it really interesting, but I have not had anything in terms of spirit boxes or EVP's or cold spots somewhere, nothing that I could measure that I'd say there it is, I see it right now. It was always more right. my my physical senses that did it.
1: Yeah, I agree. And I mean, obviously if if any clear measurements of this stuff had ever occurred it would change history Absolutely. As, we, as we mentioned earlier i mean if somebody came out with an indisputable evp or an indisputable photograph it would change everything but um i am with you in that one of the things that turned me around from being a hundred percent skeptic um was the number of witnesses of mm-hmm. people who have had experiences who Who can, like I said, with somebody like Bridget, I have seen her do this enough times that I know it's not just a coincidence that happened once. She seems to be able to do it in any house that's had something strange happen. And um, so I don't, where I still remain skeptical is I don't know what it is. I am not 100% convinced that it is Spirits of the Dead. Um, But I am certainly open to any possibility at this point. I would love to hear proof in one way or another whether it's a telepathic ability on the yeah. part of some people whether it's a form of mass hallucination whatever it is I'm I'm very interested in seeing how the future of investigation progresses
0: and I also don't want to make it sound like I'm a hater on psychics or mediums either I just think unfortunately there's such a spectrum because I I have no preconceived notions that I know how the brain works or how our what our brain is capable of and like anything, like any other condition that humans have, we all have on the spectrum. You know, every man typically every man has hair, but our hair's all different, right? We're all on a spectrum. Uh, right. We all have eyesight, but our eyesight's all different. Some uh, to the point where some people don't have any. So there are things I get it. So when I'm saying that I'm expecting a psychic to tell me what I'm thinking and what I'm going to do tomorrow, that may be one spe- one line of the spectrum. But I'm not saying that the person who says, "Well, I hear sounds." And then I, and then I feel a presence and then that's, that's kind of the trigger. I'm not saying that person's wrong or being deceitful in any way. It's just different, right? It's just a different part of the spectrum and it's so big and broad, but I'm, I'm with you with the amount of cameras and video equipment that we have everywhere. Now, every street corner in some, ca- you know, in England, you can't get away from being on ca- on camera In Japan, you can't get away from being on camera. It seems like you would have seen something by now, something really credible. Yeah. But we're also in the time where everything is faked and the fakes look really, really good. So people put fake videos online and they look great. You think, wow, that's that's definitely evidence. And then you, you can't believe it. So now we may have, there may be a, a completely genuine video out there, but now we don't believe it because of all the fakes. So you know, I- it's a bad situation for us. We're coming right up on the hour. I, again, I really appreciate you being with me here with me again, Lisa. The, my last question is, kind of maybe just your opinion. You know, what drives the continued interest in spirit communication? I mean, it has not died down. I mean, it's waxed and waned in terms of popularity, but even today we have Ghostbusters out there asking if somebody's here and if you are, knock or make this light, this flashlight come on. Do you think it is? Again, I, I talked about it earlier that emotional need that we have. To for our loved ones who have passed on, or just the hope of confirmation that something more than just this life, what do you think it is um, that keeps us so interested?
1: Well, certainly, I think both of those can come into play. I, certainly, we all want to believe that there's something beyond this life, that our consciousness doesn't cease when yeah. our bodies. Um, and I think mediums, um, certainly play to that idea. They also play to the notion you were talking about, which is that we love certain people in our lives mm-hmm. and we want to that those people have found something happy, that they have continued in some form, that we will be reunited with them at some point. So those are all parts of both religion and uh, paranormal beliefs, um, so, yeah, I think that's a belief that will probably never completely leave us
0: until science catches up and, and breaks some rift in the space time continuum. And we realize that in reality, we just walk across this little tiny little bridge here and we're in a, a parallel universe. And that's where all your friends are and your family is now that well, that'll be a day, won't it? When they say, here, we got this. There it is. And, and you realize how close you are. Oh, just, that's a whole different podcast. Sorry. That's a you're baking my noodle. Um so once again, the name of the book is Calling the Spirits: A History of Seances. You can go we just basically touched on it high level tonight. You pick up that book, you're going to go further in depth in all the people and the stories that we've that we've talked about tonight and more. I'm you know, Lisa held a lot of things back. She has a lot more stuff in that book. Go ahead and pick it up. Uh, you can find that again on lisamorton.com and amazon.com. In the last moments we have here, Lisa "Is there anything else that you have going on that you wanted to take a moment and plug? Any any other uh, how was your um, your October, your Halloween? Anything fun happen during that time frame?
1: It was great. It was
0: um, despite the rest
1: of the world. Uh, yeah. One of the great things about it is that people are using the virtual technologies now, and that allowed me to connect with a lot of people in October. It was really fun. I did a lot of podcasts. Um, if you'd like to see everything that I did in October, you can go to my website, which is lisamorton dot com. Click on the blog, and you'll see a blog post that that uh, list all the different appearances I did in October and uh, into November even this year.
0: Well, all right. Thank you once again. I really appreciate it so much and uh, hope you have a great afternoon.
1: Thanks, you too. And thanks again for having me back.
0: Thank you. So once again, that's Lisa Morton and we talked about the history of seance and uh, again, how we went through the start, early necromancy, you know, the crazy people throwing bones and reading your your future from the bones how it then really kind of got started in the Victorian times with pomp and circumstance of that Victorian era and that's really what I think of when I think of a séance. I think of honestly, I'm sure everybody does. I think of the big dresses and the woman uh you know with the with the crystal ball and the the tables moving. It was more of a show to me. It always seems like more of a show than something actually real. But how much of their lack of sophistication in terms of science contributed to the feeling that they got and the amount of belief that they had and how for a while it was believable. People believed that you were actually communicating with spirits and the spirits were making these, these knocking sounds or they were making this table levitate. And it wasn't just you doing it. But then eventually the debunkers came in it, that the human condition is to see things that amaze them and then try to figure out what it is, what it is in reality. This is amazing to me. How does it work? And so it was only a matter of time until somebody caught you, caught you cheating, caught you lying, caught you manipulating something and debunked you. And then once that happens, it takes a while to regain any credibility. And then when you do regain the credibility, it's in a different form. So now you're not making tables move. You're talking to Uncle Larry. And, you know, there's a man in the in the audience here. He's uh, he's a father figure, you know, the, the spiel. And I And I'm serious. I really I find that distasteful when people who are really in pain and having trouble go to these shows. And maybe it's partly their fault, too, because they're setting themselves up. They want to hear these things so badly, so they will put themselves in a situation that could potentially emotionally scar them, harm them, whatever. But at the same time, these people who are in it more for the money or more for other reasons than to help someone um, are taking advantage of them. Because in reality, if you just wanted to help somebody, you don't need a television show for that. If you just want to help somebody, you can just do it. So anytime you come in and you're making millions of dollars doing it like that, and you have plants in the crowd, uh, that to me, you're a bad person. Uh, it just is what it is. That's, that's my feeling on it. And it was interesting to talk about kind of the way the new uh, ghost hunter phase has come. It was really big in the early... 2000s. I mean, it was huge. Everybody had a ghost show in the early 2000s. It's kind of put, peeled back a little bit. There's only so many times you can have that same formula. It got so formulaic. Everybody went into the building. Everybody's in the night vision. Everybody hears a knock in the, at the end of the hallway and they all freak out and scream. It it gets boring after a while. If you're not really seeing something fly around and move, it gets boring. And so then you are manufacturing evidence, kind of like the, the ghost hunter's Who was it? Grant from Ghost Hunters got kind of caught making things move, making, you know, have a string in his coat and pulling his hood down and things like that, making up evidence because it made better television. When you get to that point, it's time to stop the show. So, again, waxing and waning. Uh, I really appreciate Lisa coming on and kind of talking about the history of it because I do think it's not going away. People have faith, people believe in something more, and people need to have someone else who can. Guide them in that belief and, and help connect them with the people that they love or that they miss. I don't think it's going to go away. What do you think? Uh, you can contact us on our email account, it's provemewrongcast at gmail.com. That's our email address. You can also find us on Facebook and Instagram. Prove Me Wrong Podcast is the name of the podcast. Look for us on either one of those platforms. We're on Twitter as well, at Prove Me Wrong Podcast. Uh, you can like and subscribe to the show, and you will get the new content as it comes in. You can also drop us a line on those platforms. If you're just looking for other ways to hear the podcast, we are on every podcast platform. Again, we have a podcast version and a video version, so you can watch the video. You can watch my conversation right now with, uh, with Lisa, or you can just listen to the podcast while you work. Either way, if you're interested in listening, we are on all major podcast platforms, Spotify, Stitcher, SoundCloud, TuneIn Radio, Anchor, iTunes, Any place where you find podcasts, Podbean, you can find the Prove Me Wrong podcast. Like and subscribe to the channel, and you will be notified when a brand new episode releases. I tend to release them once a week, and they run the gamut. Again, we'll we'll do a lot of different things. We don't uh, pigeonhole ourselves into one specific topic on the show. We'll talk conspiracy theories. We'll talk paranormal. We'll talk health and wellness. We'll talk whatever, current events. Really, anything that I that I find interesting, uh, I'll bring a guest on and we'll talk it through. We Again, we are on Rumble and on YouTube. We have a video version for both. Like and subscribe to the Prove Me Wrong podcast page on Rumble or YouTube. And again, you'll be notified when a brand new episode is released and you can watch us live. Well, we can watch us recorded in the video format. And before we go tonight, then, I did want to talk about our sponsor. Our sponsor tonight is ZendoZone Citronella Burners from JT Eaton. I've got one right here. Look at him. That's good looking, right? ZendoZones uh, uses natural 3% citronella candles and incense cones. And they are perfect. Patios, decks, backyards, campsites, poolside, and more. They're shaped like fearless bug-repellent tiki gods, right? So let Surf and Stand, Hawaiian Howie, and Luau Lily bring the islands to your backyard with Zendo Zone citronella burners. They are available on Amazon.com and at select Ace Hardware stores. If you don't find them at your select Ace Hardware store, drop us a line at ProveMeWrongCast at gmail.com. Let us know the address of that particular store, and we'll try to get them in there. That's how we roll around here. So once again, for Lisa Morton, the name of the book is Calling the Spirits, A History of Seances. I'm Pete Lieb. This is the Prove Me Wrong Podcast, and we'll see you again soon.